Uh, let's pray before we look at this part of the Bible together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful joy it is to meet together with our church family. Uh, we thank you that because you are our Father, uh, we can call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, as we now sit under your word, we pray that you'll help us not to get distracted by the lack of light or other things, but instead help us to understand it correctly, and more than that, help us to put it into practice in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with Easter falling where it did this year, and with a sort of... Uh, adjusting our preaching program to finish on Mark 16 on Easter Sunday because that was when the resurrection happened. Uh, we've got a one-week gap, which is today, before we start a little series on the Psalms from the Old Testament. So I'm filling that gap and um, I'm taking the chance to just look at this wonderful little passage, the second reading. We had a minute ago from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. Yesterday, the 10.30 a.m. congregation, we had our big day in uh, and uh, we thought about this whole idea of who are we as a church? What does it mean in particular that we are the family of God? Uh, that was sort of the focus of the day. And uh, this is one of the passages we looked at. And so after I shared it with all the people at the 10.30 congregation yesterday, I thought, why don't I share it with people from the 6.30 congregation tonight? So that's why we're looking at it. So one of the questions we asked was, what does a healthy church family look like? Uh, that's the question. Uh, and I think that is a question that's really worth nutting out. Uh, what does a healthy church look like? And there are different places in the Bible we could look, but I want us to go to Acts 2. So that's what we're doing. Because uh, I think what you get here is a wonderful snapshot of what a healthy church family does look like. So open up your Bibles, even if you need to sue us later to get glasses or something because for reading in the dark. But anyway, open up and follow along. Uh, to put you in the context, what this is describing is the first day of the church. Uh, this is the beginning of what we are now. Uh, that's what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus has come, he, his ministry has happened, he has died on the cross, three days later he has risen from the dead and he's then appeared to over 500 people over the course of 40 days and now he has given the church, his apostles, their task and our task, which was to go and make disciples of all nations and then he has ascended up to the heavens to be with his father and with our father. And so what then happens is, having ascended, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit upon his people. That's the day we call Pentecost. Uh, and at Pentecost, there was this incredible moment where suddenly the apostles spoke in all these different languages so that all the people there could hear the gospel preached in their own language and in perhaps the most amazing evangelistic sermon ever, and the first evangelistic sermon ever, Peter preaches and 3,000 people become Christians. Imagine the building problems we'd have if that happened. I've never even preached to 3,000 people, let alone see 3,000 people become Christians. But that's what happens. And so the church was born, literally overnight. Suddenly, this goes from being this little band of followers of Jesus to 3,000 strong in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and that is the church that now gets described in these verses. So look with me at them, verses 41 to 47. And the thing that strikes you, I hope it struck you as we read it together, and as Naomi read it for us before, it's just a wonderful picture of true Christian fellowship. That's what it is. And I want us to see what we can take from it, so what we can get from it to apply to our church family here. But before we do, I just want to point out that over the years, I think there have been two errors 
in understanding this passage. Two uh, problems people have had in trying to put this into practice. The first is where people have taken these verses and sort of said, that is the perfect church. And so that should be the blueprint for how every other church should now be into time immemorial or until Christ returns. And what often happens then, if I can be very frank, is cults get started. There are a lot of cults started on the back of this passage because people try and set up a Christian commune because there's all this talk about selling everything and sharing everything. So people say, well, the way we should run a church is we shouldn't all have our own houses anymore. We should just sell it all, put all the money in a pot and go and live at Nimbin or somewhere like that. And that never, ever goes well. So if anyone ever asks you to live at Nimbin, anyway, no. Uh, that's to misunderstand this passage and it fails to read it in the light of all the rest of the New Testament's teaching about church. Or people read this and say, yeah, that's the sort of church I want to be a part of. I want a church that looks just like that. And then they go on this never-ending search to find it. And they never find it. Because this is just a little snapshot of the beginning of the church for just a, a period of days or at the most weeks. And, and so people who go on this search forever to find this perfect church like this one, they, they never get it because every church ends up having its issues. And you've only got to read on about five more chapters to see that this church had lots of issues as well in Acts chapter 2. But the other mistake, because I don't think really they're our mistakes here, I think the other mistake is more the mistake Christians like us, if I can lump you in the same basket as me at that point, you can take that however you will. Uh, the, the mistake Christians like us, Western, rational thinking, evangelical Christians, we make is we say, oh, that was then, this is now. And, uh, and so this is just a description of what that church looks like. It's got nothing to say to us about how we should do church. We're going to be so quick to point out that it's not us that we don't then let it challenge us to think about, well, does it have things to say to us about how we do church? Does it have things to challenge us about, to encourage us with? We don't let it sort of hold up a mirror to us and say, well, should we be thinking differently about our church and the way we do things? And that's what this passage is, I think, and that's the way we're meant to read it. What it is is a description of a wonderful example of just what a family of God, which is what we are, just what it should aspire to be, a healthy church. And yes, it's not a law on how to do church and the details will differ. I mean, we don't have the apostles and their miracles, for one thing. But we should want to be a healthy church family like this. And so that's what I want us to let it do tonight, is sort of let it hold up a mirror to us to think about us as a church family. So what are the things you see when you look at this picture? Look at verse 42 with me, because I think it summarizes it there. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now I want to look at each of those things in turn. But first of all, the first thing I want you to notice there, and probably the most important thing, is that word it uses. They devoted themselves to these things. Devotion is a great word. And the word they cho chose to describe this church is that they were devoted. It's more than commitment. Devotion is sort of like a single-minded commitment. There was nothing half-hearted about these brothers and sisters in Christ. They were devoted to these things. So firstly, look there again, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The very essence of being a disciple 
is to be a learner. See, to be a disciple, you follow a Lord. So the very essence of being a disciple of Jesus is you say, I want to learn from my master. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so these Christians, as soon as they came to know Jesus, they devoted themselves to learning from, in particular, the apostles' teaching. Now, they had the apostles firsthand. So they went along to the temple courts and there was Peter preaching to them. Or there was John preaching to them. Is there anyone who's never thought, you know, I wish I was back there. I've always thought this. I just wish I could have heard Peter preach on that first day. I wish I could have heard John preach, you know, and as I read it in the New Testament. Uh, we don't have that. That's just the reality. The apostles are long dead. But we actually have something better. I don't mean me at that point. I'm not <laughs> getting proud on you. Uh, we have something better. People have this romantic idea that I wish I was back in the early church. Once you were back there, you wouldn't, I can tell you. But no, we have the collected works of the apostles. So you see, most people in the early church, they might have had one apostle come through for a week, start their church and then leave five leaders to say, here's some things to keep teaching people. And then after a while, they might have got one letter from Paul, like if they were in Colossae, they might have got Colossians or the Romans got Romans. We have it all. We've got the collected works of the apostles. We've got the New Testament. We have the Bible, and that is what we devote ourselves to. Now, I think they were committed to it as individuals. I think that's the case. But the key here is they were not just individual learners. They were devoted to it together. As a group, as a family, they said, this is what we hang on. This is what we want to soak up the teaching of the apostles. The healthy church is devoted to learning from the Bible together. That's why I get so excited when I come up here early on a Sunday night and I just see little groups of people reading the Bible together. There is nothing that gets me more excited than that. You might think I lead a very boring life, but that's, that's because there is nothing more exciting than that. That is the most exciting thing. That's why every time we meet, the Bible is open. Because that is what we hang on. That's what we devote ourselves to. And one last thing on this part of it. I think there's such a thing, and I think it's really, really common in the modern church. There's such a thing as what I call a theoretical devotion to the apostles' teaching. I think if I asked everyone here, is the Bible important? You would say, yes, amen, yes, it's really important. And if I said to you, is the Bible the word of God, is it the final authority for all matters of life and doctrine, you would say, yes, I agree with that as an in-principle truth. Christians have a theoretical devotion to the Word of God. But that's not what this is describing. You see, this is describing saying, I want to know it. I want to learn it. I don't just believe it is the authority. That drives me to then want to understand it totally and to know every part of it and, and, and to just soak it in. To be devoted to the apostles' teaching means to be devoted to learning it, not just agreeing with it in principle. The healthy church is like a sponge. That's what I pray for us. The healthy church is just like a sponge, just continually saying, I cannot get enough of the apostles' teaching, of the New Testament, of the Word of God, and I want to take it and I want to apply it and I want to live by it. I just want to breathe it. I just want to know it so well. 
Sometimes people say about our church, do you know sometimes people talk about our church? We actually have a reputation. Do you know that? Generally a good one, which is nice, nice to think. And generally it's an inflated one and bigger than the reality. But one of the reputations we have as a church is people say, at St George North, there is good teaching. That's what we're sort of renowned for around the place. And I, I must admit, I like that. It tickles my pride. I'm the main preacher. So if people say it's good teaching, I sort of say, well, that's quite nice for me. But, but I want to say to you, good teaching is really important. You don't want to go to a church that doesn't have good teaching. But good teaching is nothing for you to be proud of, if I can put it that way. Good teaching, that, they had good teaching, but that's not what this is talking about. What is important is the quality of the listening and the quality of the learning. That's what a devotion to the apostles' teaching is talking about. It, these people were devoted to learning from the good teaching. They didn't just have this theory, oh, isn't it good our, teach, our church teaches faithfully, Others, other churches don't. They soaked it up. They were devoted to learning. A healthy church will have good teaching, but more important than that, it will have a congregation, it will have a church family that hangs on it and lives by it and devotes itself to it. Let's move on. Next mark of a healthy church. They're in verse 42 again, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. I think this is the thing that strikes you most when you read these six or seven verses. More than anything else, they were committed to one another. That's what strikes you about these people. But what is the fellowship? You've heard me say this before, I think, uh, but that word fellowship has lost its meaning. And sadly, service, church service leaders have helped with this because they say, we've had our church time now, so now let's have fellowship over a cup of tea or over a cup of coffee. Not here at 6.30. I nearly called us church in the bank, Troy. 6.30 church. Not here at 6.30 church because we have our cup of tea before. But what fellowship has come to mean is a holy cup of tea or a holy cup of coffee. It's, it's having a cup of coffee with Christians and it's this sort of innocuous, meaningless thing. That's not what the fellowship is. The word koinonia, in the original language, the word meant a business partnership, an investment in one another. So when it says they were committed to the fellowship, it says they thought of themselves as partners together in this gospel thing, in this following Jesus thing. And you see this partnership worked out in a couple of key ways in the passage. I want to point out a couple. The first is time, and I think the most important one. The first is time. The thing that always strikes me is they just hung out together heaps. That's what they did. Look at verse 44. It says, now all the believers were together. And then verse 46, every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex. They met daily. Now understand this before you get guilty and, and say, Phil, I want to meet here at St. James every morning, you know, uh, every day before I go to work. And if you want to, I'll do it. But this was a special time. This was during the Pentecost season, which was like a religious festival where, where people didn't go to work. It was a, a time where you devoted yourselves to things but you see what their attitude was that's the most important thing to see here they weren't like the modern christian who asks what i call the pharisee questions if you ever want to get me annoyed if you're the sort of person who likes sam davis just looked at me as soon as i said if you ever want to get me annoyed he said oh tell me how phil no um <laughs> sorry Seth. <laughs> if you ever want to get me annoyed come and ask me what i call a pharisee question the pharisee question is 
do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Dumbest question in the history of the world. Because if you ask that, my answer to you is, yes, you do. You do. Because you don't understand the gospel, so you need every opportunity to hear it. You see, no, you don't have to come to church to be a Christian because you're saved by faith in Jesus. But if you're a Christian, you come to church. It's just the way it works. If you understand what church is, the gathering of the body of Christ, the family of God, you come to church. The other one is, am I allowed to miss church for this or that? Well, my then answer to that is, other people might be, but not you. Because obviously that thing's an idol for you. If you you think it's about laws and all that sort of stuff. You see, they didn't ask, how often do we have to meet together? They didn't ask that question. What did they ask? How often can we meet together? How much can we fit it in, meeting together with our brothers and sisters in Christ? That was the attitude they had because they were devoted to one another. And do you notice just what a big part meals played in that? Look at verse 46. It says, they broke bread from house to house. See, they didn't come together for an hour and then go home to their castles and draw up the the drawbridge, like so many modern people do, lock their front door and lock themselves in with their little family. They didn't do that. They invited everyone else into their homes and they ate in each other's homes. When it talks about breaking bread together, it could have been the Lord's Supper. I don't think it was though. I think it's what was described there in verse 46 where they just shared meals. But it doesn't matter. The point is eating together is a massive part of sharing lives together. Why is that, do you think? Because that's what families do. Families eat together. The first sign that there's problems in a family is when they stop eating together. Because that's where a family bonds together. And that's what a church family should as well. Now again, these are not laws. There is no law that says you have to meet daily with other Christians. There is no law that says you should always have other people at your dinner table no matter what. And I don't think that every one of the 3,000 Christians in Jerusalem knew every other one and had had a meal in their homes. I'm sure there were some people who, when Acts got written a few years down the track, said, oh, that's not how I remember it. No one ever invited me over. I'm sure there was someone like that. Though knowing Peter, you know when you read Peter, how blunt he is, I wonder if he would have just said, well, did you invite anyone over? Stop whinging and start doing. That's what Peter would have said to them. And for us, in a church of our size and in a modern world where we don't live in a village anymore, where, you know, you get on a train at sometimes at 7 o'clock in the morning to go to work and you don't get home again till 7 o'clock at night or, or whatever it is you do or you get in your car and you drive to the other side of Sydney to work. We live in a different time. We can't just reproduce this. You'll only get frustrated if you think church has to reproduce this. It's not possible to have exactly this level of connection in our modern world. But I want to say to you, we can give it a red-hot go, can't we? Just because we can't do it exactly like they did, we can take the principles and give it a red-hot go. See, we try to manufacture this to some degree here. This is what we're... When we meet together, we're trying to manufacture this. And when we get together in our gospel teams here on a Wednesday night, we're trying to manufacture this. And that is good, but that is only ever the beginning, not the end of true Christian fellowship. I'm sure you've heard me say this before, but uh, people ask me, Phil, what do you expect? What's a good level of commitment to church? That's what sometimes people ask. And I used to sort of try and answer it and 
give a very specific answer about, well, you should come to church every week and you should be in a gospel team during the week and you should maybe serve in another ministry, maybe a kid's ministry or something else during the week. Uh, I don't say that anymore. Now I just say you should be devoted to your church family. That is the appropriate level of commitment for a Christian believer. You should be devoted to your church family. You then work out the details yourself and then ask yourself, am I devoted to these people? Because if you just think for a moment, if we, people who have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside us, that's what we are. If we, spirit-filled Christians, if we cannot see that we should meet together every week with our brothers and sisters in Christ, then what's, what's wrong? If we, if we can't see that it's a good thing to get together with other Christians around the Word of God and encourage one another, then what's wrong with us? It's just obvious. We shouldn't need a law We should just be devoted to the fellowship. That's what I long for and what I often see in our church. And that devotion to fellowship flowed out in an overwhelming generosity. I don't know about you, but I find verse 44 really confronting. Look with me. It says, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. Now, this is not about the end of personal possessions. That's not what this is saying. This is not socialism. Even in this passage, you see, people still had their own homes. Otherwise, how could they invite other people into their houses for a meal? What it is, is radical generosity. That's what you see here. If someone was in need, these Christians were generous to the point of foolishness. That's what they were. Some people even sold their own homes and their old land and gave, the, their, and gave the money over to help out other people in need. That was like giving up your life savings because they didn't have bank accounts. The only way you kept your money was either in a hole in the ground or by buying a block of land or a house or something like that. So that was their way of giving up their life savings. And the reason they could do that was, one, their hope was heaven. So they weren't tied to the things of this world. But the other reason was they knew someone else in the church family would do it for them if they got into need. It's the sort of thing you do only for your family. But that's what they did for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I think most Christians look at this and they say, that is not my church. I don't just mean our church. I mean any church in modern day Sydney. People say, I can't imagine anyone doing that. And I think we're right to sort of feel that disjunction that challenge, that difference between the modern church and this church. But remember, theirs was a world with no government welfare. You you know, we we have a government safety net. We have the best welfare system just about in the world in Australia. The reality is we are not so often presented with life and death situations amongst our church family like they are. And I must say, I am often struck by the generosity of our church family here in our church. And I think I get to see the whole picture in a way that most people don't get to see. I think people like me and Troy get to see everything that goes on, whereas other people only get a small snapshot. But I don't see everything, of course. But I see the number of meals that get cooked for people when they are going through a hard time. I see that that just literally thousands a year across our church family. I see the way people support each other through sickness and through hard times. I see the way people do massive things. I see the way people give other people their cars 
because they don't need it anymore, but that person needs a car. I see the way people give away their clothes to other people who need it and all that sort of thing. And I see things like where people have taken other people into their homes when they need it. Don't, don't so compare us and the modern church with Acts that this becomes like a rod for your back where you cannot see the wonderful good that happens in the family of God. So I give thanks to God for the way I see that love and that generosity and that fellowship in our church. And sometimes I think when it doesn't happen, it's often because people are too proud to admit they have a problem and ask other people for help. I don't think the problem is with a lack of generosity sometimes from other people. I think the problem is people are too proud to ask for help. Or, sadly, they're too uninvolved in the fellowship for people to see their needs and help them. I just say all that because, as I say, this passage can sometimes seem like a, a rod for the back rather than encouragement in that way. And can I say, can I tell you, people out there notice the love and generosity of our church. Regularly, non-Christians in our local sort of area tell me, I just notice the way people at your church look after one another. They see, they notice that people cook meals for one another when they've had a baby or when they're sick. They notice the way people give one another things. And they say to me, I'm really jealous. I wish I had friends like that. They don't realize quite what they're doing when they say that to me. Because then I say, well, why don't you just come and be a part of it and come and do Christianity Explained with us and you can find out all about it. But the point is actually a great witness, the love that goes on within the family of God and it gives us gospel opportunities. But having said all that, that is not to say that I think if someone came in from outside us and wrote a description of us, this congregation here, that they would say this about us. Because I think we are part of a modern world that so idolises money and so idolises possessions that we are so far from the sort of generosity here that even small acts of generosity seem enormous and make us different to our world that is just so devoted to serving the God of money. So I think we need constant reminders and challenges to hang more loosely to our money, to our possessions and be more generous with one another. But the point is they were devoted to the fellowship. That is, they were devoted to one another. Brings us to the third thing. Come back with me to verse 42 again, which is a devotion to prayer. One of the marks of a healthy church is that they were committed, they were devoted to praying together. And I get the sense as I read these verses that it wasn't sort of like a formal prayer time. It wasn't just a formal prayer time. It wasn't just they were devoted to their one hour a week prayer meeting. I don't think that's what it was. Instead, it, it just sort of bubbled out of them. Look at verses 46 and 47. It says, They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God. It's not so much that they had organized prayer times and praise times. I think it's really important that we pray in our Sunday services or in our Wednesday night gospel teams or wherever it is we meet. But there's a sense here that the prayer and praise was just what they did. It just sort of flowed out of their lives. I think the early Christians were seen as really weird in Jerusalem because they were just always praying and praising God, both in spoken word, just declaring the things about God to anyone who would listen, but also singing. You know, you, you know that description in Colossians 3.16 where, where Paul says uh, they sang psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in their hearts to God. That is the picture I get of this church. Can I tell you, I think we have grown in our prayerfulness 
as a church over the last couple of years. I love the way people lead us in prayer here at 630 Church. I think they are a wonderful model of godly biblical prayer. But more than that, I think we've grown in our prayerfulness together just in our congregation as general. It was so exciting when last year, if you remember, we had those morning prayer meetings and to see people just coming together at 6.15 on a weekday morning, you know, and joining me even before I'd had my shower to, you know, looking awful and half asleep. And, and there were some mornings there were 40 or 50 people praying. That is wonderful. Uh, and I think, I hope you've noticed, it's been a focus of our teaching over the last couple of years. If you haven't noticed that, you need to be more devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Uh, but we need to keep fostering that prayerfulness, don't we? That's what we need to keep because prayer is the sign of a healthy church. But often it is the hard things that are the most important. And can I tell you, prayer is the hardest thing you will ever do. If you, when you sit down to pray, struggle to pray for more than a minute, don't think there is something abnormal about you. You are normal. Because there is nothing that seems more worthless than prayer. There is nothing that seems like you are wasting your time more than praying. Because you sit there and you're talking in your head or out loud to the air. That's what you're sort of doing when you're praying. And everything in you tells you, I'd be better off doing something than praying. But I just want to encourage you, it is the hard things that are the most worthwhile. And the hardest thing of all is to devote yourself to prayer. And so do do it. Break through the difficulty of it. Anyway, they were marked by a devotion to learning, a devotion to the fellowship, a devotion to prayer. Now my final point, a devotion to growing. You'll notice it doesn't actually say that there in verse 42. If you're looking for it, it's a bit of a fudge from me. Uh, but you get this hint at the end there that even in their commitment to one another, they had not lost sight of the mission that Jesus had given them. So look again at verses 46 and 47. It says, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favour with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Sometimes I think we think that our commitment to one another our devotion to the fellowship, could exclude the outsider. But it doesn't. It actually attracts the outsider. Because people look at that type of devotion to the fellowship, which is so absent in our individualistic world where everyone just cares about number one. People look at that and they say, I want what they have. I would love to have that. And that is what happened here. As they devoted themselves to caring for one another, the Lord added to their number every day. One of the things that always strikes me, not just in this passage, but in the whole book of Acts, is that in the early church, they did not need to be commanded to share the gospel with other people. They just didn't need it. They didn't need someone to tell them, do you know you should tell other people about Jesus? Because it is just so part of the logic of the gospel. If you have been saved, you share it with other people. So they didn't need someone to command them. They just included new people all the time. But more than that, what you see here is that the healthy church family immediately just includes these new believers into their circle of devotion. Sometimes we get happy with the extent of our Christian circle of friends. 
Every Christian does. I've never met a Christian who doesn't. We get happy with our circle. And in a big church like ours, which is big in the scheme of things these days, people say, I just know enough Christians. I've got enough friends. I'm happy with this. And even sometimes we even show that sort of acts to love and generosity to that circle. We, We sort of have that devotion to that circle of Christian friends. But really, I want to say to you, that's good, but it doesn't get God excited at all. God looks at it and says, well, that's just being a really good friend. That's all that is. What is far more wonderful and what God delights in is when we show that sort of Acts 2-like devotion to the people who just come in and who we've never met and who we have nothing in common with and who we would never, ever include in our circle if we were just thinking the way the world thinks. But we say, come in and be a part of this fellowship. And come and I will devote myself to loving you and serving you just like I do to these people I've known for 20 years. You see, that is what Acts 2 is about. That is devotion to the fellowship. I think what you see here in these verses is a wonderful example of what it means to be the family of God. It's not prescriptive. That is not saying you must do this. I'm purposely not saying to you, so here are your three action points for how to be a better church, 630 church. But it is challenging. And my prayer for us together, and you might want to join me in this prayer, is that even if people wouldn't write these verses about our church, if someone came in from the outside, even if they wouldn't write Acts 2 about us, because we're in a different time, we're in a different situation, my prayer is that people might look at us here and say, despite all their failings, 6.30 Church at Carlton, they are devoted to Christ. That's my prayer, that people might look in and say that about us. We are devoted to Christ. And then they would say they are devoted to learning from the Bible. They are like a sponge, the way they just want to soak up God's word. And they're devoted to prayer. I just see it in the way it bubbles out of them. And more than anything, my prayer is they would say, and they are devoted to each other. They're devoted to the fellowship. But then I would pray that they might say, and I want to be a part of that. And my prayer is that you and me might then include them in as new brothers and sisters in the family. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful picture of your church. And we pray that the same things might be said of us, that together we might be a people who are devoted to learning from the Scriptures, that we might be a people who are devoted to prayer, And that we might be a people who are devoted to the fellowship, to one another. And Father, we pray that that devotion might never only be inward focused, but we might always be seeking to include new people within our fellowship and show the same devotion to them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.